You are listening to the Eating Disorders Recovery Podcast with me, Tabitha Farrar. Hello, welcome. Well, despite a crazy weekend training wild horses at the rescue horse center that I train at, I still found the time to talk to Tara DiLiberto about a new program that she is directing at Wild Cornell Medicine and New York Presbyterian Hospital's Eating Disorder Center. You're going to hear the conversation that we had today, and if you know or are an adult suffering from an eating disorder, you are going to love to hear about this program that's coming up. It's very exciting. It's the first of its kind, and I can't wait to talk about it. Here's the conversation. Thanks for making the time today. It's nice to talk to you. Of course, likewise. So um, I know that we, I mean, I've sort of seen um, a lot of what you do on social media, mostly. Tara, would you be able to tell me a little bit about uh, what you do? Sure. So I just accepted a position as an assistant professor at the medical school, essentially, of uh, Cornell University. And um, I'm also directing a new adult eating disorders partial hospitalization program at New York Presbyterian Hospital. Wow, I don't even know where to start. Um, (laughs) I want to talk about all of those things. Um, Let's talk about you to start with. How did you get into all this? Oh, man. Um, Well, I started uh, studying psychology about uh, maybe 12 years ago now, um, kind of halfway through undergrad, and found my way into research um, in the suicide and self-injury world. And um, I took an interest to um, learning about and researching and treating um, people who have uh, disorders that, you know, psychological disorders that impact uh, the physical uh, body, right? So um, self-injury, of course, uh, would involve, you know, cutting oneself and uh, eating disorders, um, of course, have a, a huge impact on the body. So um, I ended up uh, taking a couple of training positions in the eating disorder world, loved it, and um, wound up directing this, this program, um, which is, you know, really exciting. So tell me, what did you love about the eating disorder world? Yikes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, um, I found working with people who have eating disorders to be particularly challenging for many different reasons, right? So if you're going to treat an anxiety disorder, someone would come in and tell you what thoughts they had and uh, what they were anxious about. And uh, you can kind of treat treat. Um, someone based on the content of what they're saying versus in eating disorders, when when you're a clinician, you have to observe people's behavior, uh, make inferences a lot more um, based on what you see and kind of deduce what might be going on for that person um, and and take a more comprehensive approach, right? So um, we, of course, involve family members and we have to teach family members kind of the skills that we learn. uh, And Long story short, um, treating people with eating disorders is much more complex from a psychological standpoint, and also um, there's so much more to know about the, the medical side of things that I, I just found it very engaging. Um, I've, I like working with people who have eating disorders um, uh, as people, let alone all of the you know the, the technical skills uh, that are involved. But um, so I guess a combination of the skill level involved and uh, the people that I've met with eating disorders have really drawn me to that work. Well, I have to admit, as far as head cases go, we eating disorder patients are a particularly friendly and interesting bunch. 
Apart from you trying to force us to eat, that is, and then all hell breaks loose. But aside from that, we're just lovely. Seriously, though, I can see why this is an interesting field to work in. I find it fascinating as a recovery sufferer, too. And we are far, far from fully understanding this mental illness. So in that respect, there's fantastic scope for work in the field. Oh, absolutely. Um, and it's such important work, right? It's interesting and important because this is the most life-threatening psychological disorder that somebody could have, and we don't have good treatments for it. Just, yeah. Yeah, you heard it right. And I've read, heard, and said this fact thousands of times myself, but I balk every time I hear it. This is the most life-threatening disorder that you can have, and there aren't good treatments for it. Not yet, anyway. Working on it. <laughs> so there really is a frontier um, where we can you know, develop treatments and, and research them, um, which is, which is um, exciting from a, a kind of uh, uh, career standpoint, but more importantly, uh, it's it's really um, important to do this work um, because people, again, their lives are at risk because of this. So um, it's really needed. The research in this area is really needed. And um, in, in your field of work so far and just with your experience so far, what do you think is one of the biggest areas uh, in need of focus? Oh, <laughs> well, um, I'm discovering now really how challenging it is to work with people who are adults who have eating disorders um, that have been uh, suffering from the eating disorder for many years and are just coming into treatment for the first time. Um, that's much more challenging work than um, working with adolescents whose parents are really on the ball, caught the eating disorder early, brought, um, brought them into treatment. And we also have treatments that we know are pretty effective for the adolescent population. So uh, doing work with adults uh, who have had eating disorders for a long time is very uh, different, and uh, I think that's where we need to do the most work. Alrighty then. So that was me. Onset of anorexia at age 17. 10 good years of malnutrition, mental illness, and overall unhappiness is what followed for me personally. Firstly, it took me the best part of that 10 years to even recognize that I had an eating disorder due to the bad information that had been fed by my doctors at the time as to what anorexia actually was. And then when I'd self-diagnosed, finally, could I find treatment? No. Nada. The only sort of treatment I could find was psychobabble rubbish, and even then I knew that wasn't what I needed. I've written and podcasted on how I managed to recover, but my route to wellness was not easy, nor is it replicable for many. I get emails and tweets every week from adult sufferers who don't even know where to start with recovery. Or worse, they've tried an inpatient program and it's failed them. I asked Tara what the new program offers to try and improve the medical recovery path, or lack of it, for adults. I was thrilled to hear her talk about something you know I am passionate about family-based therapy. What we've found um, in our program, even though we've been only open for uh, several weeks, uh, it really is so important and so crucial to involve the family. Um, and, and I know that people that are reaching out to you are reaching out to you over the internet from, you know, across oceans and um, you, you don't necessarily have uh, the ability, not being physically there to kind of uh, uh, convince them to go into treatment, but at the the new program that we've opened, it's part of this larger eating disorder center. So the patients that I've been speaking with are inpatient, and maybe they were um, 
you know, maybe they found themselves in the hospital after going to a medical doctor who involuntarily hospitalized them, or maybe they went to a medical doctor who was, you know, very adamant about them receiving treatment uh, on an inpatient uh, or in an inpatient kind of setting. So when I'm talking with people from our inpatient unit and getting them to consider um, treatment uh, after discharge, um, it's it's been really crucial to speak with family members first and get a commitment from the family members so that they can help um, they can help the people being discharged from the unit and keeping up with care right because it's so difficult with that internal struggle between what the eating disorder is telling you um, uh, and and what uh, the re- you know the recovering self wants that really a family member or loved one or support person, friend, what have you, it's so crucial to have them involved. Now, that's another good point. It's called family-based therapy, right? But it doesn't have to be a family member that helps you do it for it to be FBT. I talk about having an ED check person in your life on all of my recovery resources, and this person acts as the mom or parent would in FBT. I always like to point this out strongly as you can set up FBT with your own support network even if you're estranged from your family or if you're living far away from them. I went on to tell Tara how oddly enough I often wind up talking to the parent or spouse or good friend of an adult sufferer um, even if it was the actual sufferer that reached out to me first. At some point I usually just say something like can I talk to your mum or can I talk to your girlfriend or boyfriend or spouse? As I find that getting the parents slash family slash loved ones re-motivated and re-engaged is very helpful, as well as arming those people with the resources that will help them understand. Also, I find that if somebody's been suffering for a very long time, often and quite understandably, the family can just get demotivated and they feel like they have tried to help this person recover a thousand times and... So that re-motivation is important when, when I feel that somebody really is ready to commit to recovery this time around, re-motivating the loved ones of that person and giving the tools that they need in order to help that person really get through that recovery, I think it's super important. Now, let's get some more information on this program of Tara's. Sure. Um, so the program runs from 8.30 to 3, Monday through Friday. Um, it's only for adults at this stage. And we either take adults that are coming from our inpatient unit or from outside referrals. And the program is based in Westchester County, outside of New York City. We take all forms of insurance. And um, the program is uh, really run by a multidisciplinary team and directed by myself. So I'm a psychologist and a behavioral specialist. Um, and we have a nurse, two psychiatrists, a social worker, three advanced doctoral students in clinical psychology, a dietitian, dietitian trainees, and a few other research assistants and, and people helping in the milieu um, that really um, taken together can treat the psychological and medical aspects of the eating disorder. Um, so we're three weeks in, um, so we're very new as a program. Um, that being said, the staff um, have worked on our inpatient unit and in other hospitals. Myself, I've worked at Mount Sinai's Eating and Weight Disorders Program, North Shore, North Shore LRJ, uh, now known as Northwell Health, 
uh, their adolescent partial eating disorders program. Um, I've worked in outpatient settings on the Upper East Side, treating private clients who have eating disorders. So myself and other staff members aren't new to the treatment of eating disorders, but we are new to the treatment of adults in a partial hospitalization setting with eating disorders. So there are some new challenges that we're facing, but I think we're adapting and learning pretty quickly. Can you give me an example of, of any specific challenges? Oh, absolutely. There are so many. I don't know if we have time to, to discuss all of them, but really, um, so we'll start with the treatment itself, and then there are other logistical issues to discuss as well. But in terms of the treatment, um, I wrote a treatment called BITE is the acronym, and uh, this is really a behaviorified Maudsley approach for adolescents. So we take principles from oppositional defiant disorder treatment and anxiety treatment and the treatment of um, other eating disorders uh, outside of anorexia nervosa. And we take all of these behavioral principles and really apply them to the treatment of adolescents with eating disorders or anorexia nervosa at this point, but more broadly in the future eating disorders. And so I've, I've written this treatment bite with Dina Hirsch, um, Dr. Dina Hirsch, who is at Northwell Health now. And, and we've now had to adapt the material that we've written for adults. Um, and that is challenging because adults require more one-on-one -on -one treatment, require different levels of family involvement, at least in my experience, um, and, and a more supportive and a, um, and a less aggressive approach from a behavioral standpoint. And we have to kind of start more slowly and steadily, it seems, uh, in a partial program because our adults are voluntarily attending the program. Right, I was going to say, they can probably just leave whenever they want, can't they? They absolutely can. <laughs> no one is forcing them to be there. Um, it really is voluntary. And if we go you know, forward with the treatment, you know, in a, in, a, in a very aggressive way, uh, people are just going to become overwhelmed and drop out. So we have to be much more considerate of where a patient is from a psychological standpoint and balance that with where they are from a medical standpoint, right? So if they're medically fairly compromised, uh, we, can't, we can't be too relaxed about our approach. Um, and, you know, at the same time, it's often the case that people are, who are medically compromised can also be uh, compromised psychologically by the eating disorder to, to a large extent. So, for instance, if we were to treat someone with a simple spider phobia, we would have them come in to treatment and we would ask them on a scale of zero to 10, how anxious does it make you feel, with 10 being the most anxious, uh, seeing a spider in person? And then they might say, uh, a seven. And we would say, okay, well then we won't have you start with seeing a spider in person yet. Uh, how anxious would it make you feel to see a picture of a spider? A three. Okay. Then we'll start there. I will show you a picture of a spider. You can face your fears and then move on. But in the context of eating disorder treatment, someone might think that eating a required 3000 calories a day, for instance, in, in order to, to gain weight, um, would be at an 11 on a scale of zero to 10. But because medically they would need to gain weight, we would have to start um, at, at, a, at a more advanced place um, than we would start if we were dealing with a simple phobia because we have to consider a person's medical health, their nutritional needs, and all the, 
the, all of the rest. So it's it's a really it's it's really been I think a challenge so far to determine for each individual patient how ready they are psychologically to approach different behavioral challenges and um, and uh, their their medical needs. So that's why I think involving family is so important because even if uh, someone is is very afraid to you know eat the the calories prescribed or the exchanges prescribed, um, a family a family member or a support person can help to support that person in, in the day-to-day, decrease their anxiety, keep them coming into treatment. So um, we really have to take a much more contextual and measured approach to the treatment of eating disorders in, in, in adults. Great. And um, great example there. I, I do feel that for many of us, it's well, we want to start, you know, we want to start by, by walking up these little steps, but actually where we have to start is by being pushed off a cliff. Yes. That's what it feels like. Yes, that's absolutely right. And so what inspired this program? Okay, well, there are, there are a few different factors that influence the uh, development and implementation of this program. So we have an inpatient unit at New York Presbyterian, and we also have outpatient services. And the outpatient services are pretty standard. If you have an eating disorder, you go into our clinic, and you meet with someone once or twice a week doing talk therapy. But there's really nothing in between, or there was nothing in between, um, inpatient and outpatient. So we would get adults, for instance, that were going into the hospital severely underweight, and they're discharged usually around 80% of uh, where their body would need to be in order to be healthy. And so they still have to gain that 20%. And, And going from that inpatient setting where they had support all of the time at every meal and were prohibited essentially from engaging in eating disorder behaviors to an outpatient setting where um, people were going in once or twice a week for treatment, uh, it's, it's just too much of a jump. So this program has been something that we've been wanting to create for a long period of time. I think that there, there just weren't kind of the right uh, culmination of circumstances. And so when I was finishing my postdoc at Cornell and looking at jobs, um, I kind of offered uh, to to help out in the partial. And Dr. Evelyn Atia, who I work with, said, well, how would you feel about directing the program? And I said, well, that sounds great. And I'd be very interested <laughs> in developing that program, directing it, and helping out with the staffing and training and all of that. So um, it it just finally... Uh, was the right time to open uh, this August. I think it's wonderful. And Tara, I'm not actually a very um, huggy person, but if we were not on Skype, I would hug you right now because that <laughs> is <laughs> fabulous. I That's another one I get is is so many adults and they, you know, they'll, they'll email me and they say, well, um, I tried inpatient treatment and it didn't work. And the reason that they're telling me it didn't work is because they came out and they relapsed straight away. And it's, it's like it, it didn't have time to work. It, 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 you, can't, it, you can't do this in two weeks. And, it, you know, it's, it's so frustrating. Oh, it absolutely is. And it's not even the case that people are relapsing because they've never had the chance to fully recover in the first place. Right. Inpatient in this day and age really is for um, acute medical stabilization and psychiatric stabilization um, in, the, in the context of eating disorders, um, but it, it isn't enough. It just isn't enough. And this kind of structure 
um, of a treatment is really needed for adults particularly, right? Because adolescents can be discharged from a unit and they can go into family-based therapy and they can have parents that really provide the structure and, and support. Uh, and once or twice a week, family-based therapy is enough, but, but adults don't have that luxury all of the time of having their parents available and and ready to help with refeeding, right? If you're a 50-something-year-old person and you're single and your parents live f far away or are otherwise inaccessible, what are you going to do? Yeah, it's terribly hard. And um, how, many, how many people can you have on the program at, at one time? So we're starting small. We're starting with a milieu of about four people at the moment, and then we're getting more staff members uh, who are coming in in October. We're going to have a postdoc who trained at North Shore LIJ slash Northwell Health with Dina Hirsch, who co-wrote Bite with me, and she's experienced, and she's going to be starting up. And um, I hope that we're going to have a few other people uh, coming on board as well, um, but we're we're planning on scaling up slowly um, and and building the treatment um, around uh, the the few number of people that we do have now, so that we can again scale it later. Fan fabulous, fantastic, and then hopefully, um, if it's successful, and I very much hope it will be, it will catch on. Um, be able yes. to have them all over the country, all over the world. Um, yeah, I really hope that this level of care is something that more people will have access to. And I'll tell you that it was no easy task creating a program that meets the requirements of all of the insurance companies, including Medicaid and Medicare. There are lots of rules and regulations that um, exist for standard partial programs, but that aren't necessarily... Uh, good or, or that work with uh, eating disorder partial programs. So there was a lot of mental gymnastics that went into figuring out how we could build a program that met all of these insurance companies and manage Medicaid requirements and, and all of the rest and also be profitable and therefore sustainable uh, because if we're not making money, right, we can't hire staff and, uh, and continue moving forward and then also effective. Right, so we have a, a very tall order here of meeting requirements that aren't aren't really uh, so easy to meet, um, and and being profitable and uh, and, and effective. So I, I understand now that I've had to go through the the process of figuring out all of this stuff why other people uh, may have been hesitant uh, to do this or, or felt like. The, the all of the regulations were really prohibitive and um i know that the insurance part has been something that many advocacy groups or probably all of them together actually have been pushing and trying to fight change on um mm -hmm. do you think that there has been much change in that area recently oh i think so um just recently i uh, i know that in new york an insurance company was sued for wrongful denial of $1.6 million in treatment for people with eating disorders. And they now reimburse dietitians for, for treating people with eating disorders. So that was a really big victory that happened, I think, last week in New York. Mm -hmm. So, so there, there are these big changes, but it's not just about coverage of, of, Eating disorders—that's a huge part of it, but it's also about um, it's also about these other things 
uh, such as some insurance companies not allowing trainees to, um, to, to meet with patients, right? And when I was a trainee, I think I had three scientific papers published, a master's degree, you know, several years of doing clinical work under my belt. You know, I wasn't a novice. Even though I was a trainee, I was, I don't know, a fourth year graduate student in clinical psychology. Um, and so I was being closely supervised and to not allow trainees to interact with patients without a licensed clinician is really prohibitive uh, because training hospitals that would you know otherwise be developing partial hospitalization programs for instance um, are not really able to use their their model of integrating trainees into the milieu if insurance companies are, are going to require that a licensed professional be present all the time anyhow so there are these other issues that I think unless you're a provider um, trying to develop a a treatment um, or a, a treatment program, rather, uh, you wouldn't necessarily know about. And so I think that there are a lot of these behind the scenes rules and regulations that are probably dissuading people from moving forward with opening other programs like this. I think that even that, just sort of that awareness for those of us that sort of get frustrated and just think, well, why isn't this available? It's so obvious that this is a need and it should be available. Actually understanding why and what the obstacles are in the face of, of people like yourself, um, you know, can help advocacy groups sort of work with insurance companies and demand change in certain areas as well. Absolutely. I've already had my wheels turning about who to talk to about what and how we can move forward with advocacy because having gone through this process, I now am much less smug about this this um, uh, this idea that of course there should be programs and you know why aren't there now now I know now I have a whole long list of reasons um, why it's so difficult to open these programs and um, I'm developing again this this list of uh, basically action actionable uh, tasks um, to to make it easier for people in the future to open programs like this. Is there anything else that I haven't asked you that you, know, you can tell me about this program? Sure. Um, well, yeah, yeah, there are a couple of things. So we take both women and men. Um, we're not um, we're we're not uh, excluding anybody based on gender. Um, we are we are taking people who who either um, well it depends so to be honest it, it depends on the diagnosis that somebody carries if somebody carries a diagnosis of anorexia nervosa we're going to be more strict about the requirement of family involvement than if you were to have another diagnosis for instance of bulimia nervosa um, we have evidence that bulimia nervosa could be treated in one-on-one -on -one therapy and yes of course family support would be absolutely uh, helpful helpful in, in facilitating uh, recovery, but it's not as necessary, I believe, um, or in my experience, um, it seems that uh, people with either anorexia nervosa or ARFID uh, would require more family support in the weight restoration process. So we do require some level of family involvement, but it's going to be different uh, based on the person. Um, and uh, let's see what else um, we have we have lots of groups throughout the day and it's primarily a group-based program and we balance that with individualizing care for each person so our groups involve two supported meals so they're behavior therapy groups and run as such 
Uh, we outline different eating disorder behaviors that one might engage in during a meal. And uh, we have uh, a dietitian who works with each of our patients in developing uh, meal plans that meet exchanges. So engaging in various recovery behaviors, we call them, uh, instead of Instead of framing it as not engaging in eating disorder behaviors, we want you to engage in behaviors like taking appropriately sized bites, having uh, an appropriate pacing at your meals, uh, finishing everything on your plate if weight restoration is something that is a goal for you, and then also eating you know, one dairy, two proteins, and whatever it is um, that you've decided with the dietitian is, is best for you. So, um, so those meals are, uh, breakfast and lunch, and we also have a snack that's eaten with the dietitian. So there are 35 times per week that we want people eating, right? Breakfast, lunch, dinner, and two snacks every day. So we have five, uh, uh, sorry, <laughs> we have three of the five uh, eating times per day covered Monday through Friday, which means that we have 15 supported meals out of the 35. So uh, there are 20 other times during the week that we need people to be supported either by in-home eating coaches or family members or friends. Uh, so we really try to take a collaborative approach in getting all of those 35 meals covered. So we'll say to a family, for instance, okay, we have 15 of the 35 meals covered in the week. Now we have to figure out how we're going to divide up the other 20. Maybe mom will take five, dad will take five, the husband or wife will take the other, you know, 10. Um, and so we try to, we try to push for full meal coverage, um, and take a, again, take a, a very team oriented approach to that. Um, and then what else? So we have, we have those, uh, behavior therapy groups. We have a nutrition group every day. We have a DBT group that's run by myself every day. Um, and then there's time for case management, individual therapy, family therapy, and the like uh, throughout each day as well. Well, this sounds like a fantastic resource. I am so excited to hear how this all develops over the next six months to a year. What I'm personally hoping is that this program will make great waves in terms of bettering ED treatment for adults. I would love to see our hospitals consult with Tara and her team and learn from them so that they can make this sort of program available in hospitals all over the country. Anyway, I know what you're thinking. How can you find out more about this program? That's a good question. Um, so I just wrote a post about the program on my blog. It's Tara DiLiberto at blogspot.com. I'll also post something about it on bite-ed, and it's bite-ed.com. Um, and then I'm sure that we're going to put up some more information on the hospital's website. It's not currently up there, but in those blog posts that I have on those sites, there's a link to the information that we have on New York Presbyterian site about the overall eating disorders program that discusses inpatient, outpatient, and mentions partial. All the resources that Tara mentioned there, I have also linked to in the show notes of this episode. And I've linked to Tara's private practice and also her Twitter handle, so you can find out information about her on there as well. Just go to my website, that's tabathafra.com, and you can find this podcast episode and all of the information that you need is right in there. It's music to my ears to hear that there is progress being made in terms of treatment options for adults with eating disorders. Be sure to check out those resources and fire away if you have any questions. 
My Twitter handle is at love underscore fat underscore. And I already told you my website, tabithafra.com. And speaking of my website, just a heads up, I, a couple of weeks ago, published a Adults with Eating Disorders Recovery Kit. And now this is based on what I learned in my own self-guided recovery, which led to a very full and sustained recovery from anorexia. If you're a sufferer or a loved one of a sufferer, I think you'll find a lot of the insider information that I give there useful. At least, I hope you do. That's there on my site. Thank you for listening today.